Welcome to the Church at Rocky Peaks downloadable messages and podcast. This week, our lead pastor, Mike Yearly, continues his series entitled The Message in the Movement, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And today's message is the seventh in the series, and it's entitled The Character of the Kingdom, Purity. There's times in my life where I just, um, I just need to tell you as a congregation how much I appreciate all you do for me. And there's times like I don't really know who did it. And so I just have to tell you all at once. And so I want to show you um, what you did last night. Could you uh, go to the screen here? This is a picture of our, uh, yeah, this is a picture of our front yard. Um, yeah, those of you who've been there for like a welcome dessert, you'll recognize that. That's what it looks like during the day, minus the toilet paper. We have one more uh, very picturesque, see the, with the sun coming through the toilet paper. Isn't that beautiful? <laughs> just so moving. And uh, so I just want to thank you. Um, I want to thank particularly the college department uh, for this uh, amazing ministry to our lives. Because I had nothing else to do this afternoon than to clean up uh, the toilet paper. So I guess Andy Thomas, his house, uh, also got hit last night, our director of technical director. So that's, that's great. Well, anyway, my name is Pastor Mike. Welcome to uh, Rocky Peak. This happens every week here. And... Uh, we're in, a, we're in a series right now in the Sermon on the Mount, and inside of your bulletin is a uh, message note sheet. If this is your first time here, I encourage you to take that out to help you follow along. Y'all have your Bibles today? I thought we'd do a Bible check this week. Have we got our Bibles? Let's hold up our Bibles. Good. Very good. Awesome. You know, last night I did this thing where I would hold it up and I would say, Word. And then you would hold yours up and respond back, Word. See? Because we're a church built on the Word, right? So let's try it. So I say, Word, and you say, Word, very good. Okay, so you want to make sure that you bring your Bibles, right? So you can do that because otherwise you just think, you'll just say weird instead of word, and, uh, which is what happened last service. Anyway, uh, we're going to go into our time of teaching now. And so uh, let's, uh, let's pray together and ask God to be with us and then we'll jump in. Father, thank you so much for what you're doing here in our church, what you're doing in each of our lives. And God, we come today with a sense of expectancy, Lord, this, this series is building and you've been meeting us week by week and, and we're, we're learning what it means to be a follower, what, it, what that looks like, what the character of the kingdom looks like. And so as we come today, we talk about this next, this number six character quality that you're building into our lives. God, we pray that you'd meet us in a powerful way. We pray that this would not just be a day where we're going through the motions or just putting in our time. We've come not because of that, but because we want to hear from you. So we pray you'd meet us now in a powerful way, and we would hear from your word. Thank you for this gift of your word you've given to us. God, we don't want to take it for granted. It's here in your word that you meet us. In these pages where you spoke so long ago, we meet you fresh again uh, each week. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, it was a famous city. In fact, it was the very first city that Israel conquered when they came into the promised land. You remember Joshua was leading them. They crossed the Jordan River. They march around the city seven times. The city falls. It's the city of Jericho. Of course, it was eventually rebuilt. And now in our story, we're fast-forwarding 1,500 years in time. It's a city he grew up in. He was a famous man in the town. It was nothing to him. It was just uh, his hometown. He was pretty famous. Everyone knew him in town. He was a tax gatherer. Doesn't mean he was popular, but he was famous. In fact, he was not just a tax collector, he was the head tax collector, which meant he was very wealthy. So he had it all. He had the car, he had the garage, he had the, the, the jet skis. I mean, this guy, he was loaded. 
He had everything. He wasn't proud of the way he'd made his money. He'd done things he wished he hadn't had to do. But he'd done it his way, and he'd risen from the ground up into this place of leadership. And now life was good. Life was successful. He had everything he dreamed of. And isn't that what life is all about anyway? But to be honest, in the last few months, maybe the last year, there's a new gnawing feeling in his heart. He can't put his finger on it exactly, but there's something missing. He's gotten everything he wants in life. He's got all this stuff. He's risen to the top, and yet there's a gnawing feeling in the, in, in, growing in his heart that, that is this all there is to life? And that leads us to this day. Because it's on this day that word comes to town that the prophet from northern Israel that they've all been hearing about for the last couple of years, he's coming to town. Now, like I said, he's been hearing about this young rabbi for the last, what, 18 months. At first, he didn't pay much attention. After all, he's not a religious man. He's not into the God thing. Long ago, he decided to go out for success and fame and wealth in his life. He kicked the traces with the, the religion of his birth. He was sort of an outcast as far as the, the spiritual committee, uh, community was concerned. So here he was. When he first started hearing the reports of this itinerant preacher, he just kind of put him off. I mean, the reports came in were legendary. They, they talked about how this man was mesmerizing when he would teach that you could not listen, but help but listen. He was so unlike the spiritual teachers of their land. He was the real deal. There was something about him that just captured and pulled you in. And on top of that, the stories were huge about the miracles that he was doing. People said they'd actually seen him touch the eyes of the blind and they could see. He would touch the ears of the deaf and they could hear. He would talk to people and just with a word who was on a stretcher and raise them from being crippled to, to normal life. There would be even stories of him raising people from the dead. And at first he blew it off. It was just a talk of religious fanatics always looking for a new Messiah. But as the months went on, the stories became more and more consistent, more and more familiar. There was something inside of him that said, I've got to meet this man. He couldn't even put his finger on it. He had no desire for God in his life, and yet something said, I need to meet this man. And so it explains why on that day, he's at his office, and all of a sudden, word comes to town that this rabbi, this itinerant preacher, he's coming into town on the main road. Everyone's rushing out there, common fare. He decides to go out too, but as he's on his way, it dawns on him, I'll never be able to see this guy. This guy's always in a crowd. I'm a short man. I can't see over the crowd. And so he comes up with another plot. After all, he'd grown up in Jericho his whole life. He knew the city like the back of his hand. He knew where that route would lead. He could picture right around the bend where it would take them. And he decided, I will go ahead of them. And so sure enough, he goes ahead. He doesn't go with the crowd. He runs ahead. And he gets there. It's just as he remembered it. There's a huge sycamore tree. It's actually a sycamore fig tree. It's 30 to 40 feet tall. It's huge wide branch. Has a short little trunk. You're able to climb it. And he made believe he was like nine years, again, nine years old again. And once again, he climbs up in this tree. He felt so ridiculous. Here he is, a middle-aged businessman, known and feared in the whole town. Had the finest of clothes. He's pulling up his robes, climbing up in a tree. But it's the only way he could see this prophet, and he wanted to see him. So he kind of pulled out all the stops. He climbed up. He went high in the branches. It would have been the kind of tree that make a great tree fort. He found a spot there where two branches were kind of came together. He could sit right there, have a perfect view, and yet be hidden from the crowd. They would never even know he was there. And so he waited. 
And sure enough, 20, 30 minutes later, the crowds come around the corner. They're coming around. He's trying to make out which one is the prophet. He can't tell. They're too far away. But as they get closer and closer, he begins to hold it. Oh, that's him. That's obviously him. You can tell by the way people are talking or the center of action. That's him. And now his heart begins to beat for reasons he can't even understand. He's getting excited about seeing this man, this man all the stories have been about. And so he's getting closer and closer. And now he's standing up on the branch and he's looking out and he's trying to make sure he doesn't fall because how embarrassing would that be? And he's holding on and he's watching and here he comes and he's coming, he's getting closer and he's closer and right when he gets there, right when he's below, no one's even noticed our man in the tree and he likes it that way. And right when he gets there, all of a sudden, the young rabbi stops. He holds up his hand to the crowd. Everyone stops. Everyone wonders, what's happening? Why are we stopping? And as if on cue, this young rabbi looks up in the tree and everyone starts looking. What's he looking for? And you're not going to believe it, but there's a guy in the tree. And he looks up there and the guy in the tree is freaking out because he wanted to be inconspicuous. And their eyes lock and he'll never forget that moment the rest of his life because the next thing the young rabbi says is his name. How does he know my name? I'm trying to go undercover here. How does he know my name? But he'll never forget that moment as he looks up and he catches his eye and he says, Zacchaeus, you need to come down because I have an appointment with you today. I must have lunch at your place. Today we come to the sixth beatitude in our series. The sixth step in the path to blessing, the sixth step of true happiness in life, the sixth character quality of true disciples. If you've been with us throughout the series, you know the drill. You know how this goes. But if you're new, let me quickly bring you up to speed. Jesus launches his ministry in the north of Israel. It's, he's wildly popular. People are coming from all over the nation to come and to listen to him teach, maybe catch a miracle. And so early on in his ministry, he takes the crowds and his disciples up to the north of the Sea of Galilee, right above the sea there. He goes up on the hillside, and he shares with them the, the message of his movement. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. He starts off this message with eight statements of what it takes to be truly happy in life. Eight statements of what the blessed life, the happy life looks like. It was a common Jewish way of teaching. We call them the Beatitudes. It means blessing in Latin. They all start the same way. Blessed is the man who does X, Y, Z, because here's why. Here's what happened. And so he's laying out the path to life, but in the process, he's also defining for us what you might call the character of the kingdom. He's describing the kind of person that he's looking for to enter his kingdom. He's describing the kind of person that he will turn us into if we follow him in his kingdom. Today we come to character quality number six, and it has to do with purity. So if you have your Bibles, and I know exactly which of you do now, if you turn to Matthew chapter five, and we'll do as we've done every week in this series, we'll read chapter five and verse eight out loud together. Okay, see there, chapter 5, verse 8. You ready? Okay, here we go. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Let's read it again. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. 
Blessed or happy are the pure in heart. Why are they so happy? Why are they so blessed? Because they will get to see God. I want to start today with a question. It's an important question. You might think it's an obvious question. I don't think it's so obvious, okay? I don't want you to show of hands. I don't want you to write on your note sheet. Don't nudge your neighbor, okay? This is just between you and God. But it's an extremely important question. We can't move forward in this message until you answer this question, okay? So here's a question. The question is, do you want to see God in your life? Do you want to see God? Do you want to know God in a personal, firsthand sort of way? Do you want that in your life? Do you want to come to a place in your life you really know the living God? You know him personally, and you know him in a firsthand way here and now, but in such a way that when he comes back in phase two of his kingdom, you will get to know him fully. Do you want to know God? Now, you might say to me, well, Mike, why are you asking that question? I mean, I'm here at church. I mean, I wouldn't be here if I didn't want to know God. I'm not so sure. Here's what I think. I think for a lot of us, we're, we, we like God, but we want like a safe God. You know what I'm saying? Like we like the God who makes the flowers grow and sends rain. We like that God. Well, we want the God who protects us on the freeway, keeps our kids safe. But I'm not so sure we always want God to come strolling through our life. Because there's a little bit of a fear here. If God shows up, he might mess with my life. What's he going to ask? What's he going to say? What's he going to do? See, Zacchaeus was a man that for most of his life, he could care less about knowing God. He didn't want to know God. It's the last thing he cared about. Zacchaeus wanted to make money. Zacchaeus wanted to be successful. Zacchaeus was after power and wealth and all that that brings. He had no interest in God as a tax gatherer. He was a spiritual renegade. He was an outcast from the synagogue. He had nothing to do with God, didn't want to know God. So there was a period in his life he wanted nothing to do with God. And then there came another period in his life where something begins to shift. Something begins to change. Something inside of him says, you know, I'm not sure the success is all it's cracked up to be. There begins to be a rumbling in his soul, a hunger for something more. And he can't even explain it, but it's why he climbed the tree that day. Zacchaeus was coming to a place for the first time in his life he wanted to see God. That's why he climbed the tree. He wanted to see God. He wanted a better eyesight. Now the question is, for you and for me, do you want to see God? Because Jesus is going to tell us today what it takes to see God. Kind of a waste of time if we don't want to see, right? So we need to ask ourselves honestly, do you want to experience God in your life? Now Jesus is going to lay it out. He's going to say that if you want to see God, the qualities you have to have is you have to be what he calls pure in heart. Well, what does that mean? Well, what we're going to do today is like we've done every week, is we're going to take this one verse, and we're going to use it as a gateway into the life and teaching of Jesus. We're going to say, well, if we study the life and teaching of Jesus, what do we learn? What does he model for us about what it means to be pure in heart? What does that look like? And what we're going to find is that there are what I'm calling three sides to purity. Now, if you were here last week, we talked about mercy. We talked about two sides of mercy. Well, today, three sides of purity. Now, this might be helpful. They're on your note sheet somewhere. If you're a visual learner, you might want to draw yourself a little triangle. All right? And what we'll do is we go through, I'll give you a key word for each of the sides. 
And just like the triangle that every side is connected to the other sides, so these three sides of purity. When you say, what does it look like to be pure in heart? You're going to see a person, they're going to have all three sides. You see, but they're all going to be connected, but they're kind of distinct sides as well. And so we're going to go through and we're going to ask that question, what does that look like to be pure in heart? What does it take to see God? We're going to look at these three sides and then we're going to come back and do a little evaluation in our own life, see how we're doing. So let's jump in. There in your note sheet, you have a section called, what does it take to see God? Three sides of purity. So let's jump in. Number one, the first word that you want to write in your triangle, on the side of your triangle, you might want to write purity in the middle of your triangle, but the first word is the word sincerity. And the principle goes like this, that purity, it starts with sincerity, and it means no hypocrisy. Okay, because so it's sincerity, no hypocrisy. So here's the first thing we learn. The first thing we learn from the life of Jesus is that God is looking for people who really want a relationship with him, not people who are going through the motions, not people who are pretending to want a relationship while really doing their own thing, you see? God's no different than you and I. How would you feel if you had someone in your life that you thought wanted a relationship with you, but after a while you found out they didn't really want a relationship, they just wanted to manipulate you to get what they wanted? Let's say you're a grandmother and your grandchild is being really nice to you, and you realize all of a sudden that they don't really like you, they want the inheritance, well, what do you do in a case like that? You withdraw from the relationship, right? You, you, we're going to all do that. We don't want to be manipulated. We want real relationship. Well, guess what? God's the same way. He has no time for people who are trying to play him. So, for example, you see this in the life of Jesus with the spiritual leaders of his day. For the most part, these guys were the great pretenders, okay? They pretended to want to please God. They pretended to want to pursue God, but in reality, they just wanted to use God for their own purposes. And it really ticked Jesus off. In fact, you see Jesus getting along with everyone but these guys. He has a word for them. The word is, you'll see it in your life group homework, the word is hypocrite, right? A hypocrite is someone who pretends to be one thing, they're really something else. And he just had no time of day for it. It was like, you hypocrites. Once, you'll study this in Matthew chapter 23, seven times he delivers woes to the spiritual leader. Now, the woe is the opposite of a beatitude, right? Beatitude is, hey, how cool, you're so blessed. Woe is like, I'm glad I'm not you. And seven times he'll go, woe to you Pharisees and teachers of the law, you hypocrites. A hypocrite, in the Greek, you know, they do these, these, um, these dramas, Greek dramas, and they would have different actors play different parts. They wear different faces, you know, so that they would appear to be someone deaf. That's where the word um, hypocritos comes from. That's where the hypocrite comes from. It's someone who's, who's playing a game with God. I'll pretend to be one person here. I'll pretend to be another person here. I'll pretend like I'm pursuing you here, but I'm really not. And God says, I have no time for that. And so Jesus says to these spiritual leaders in, in Matthew chapter 15, there on your note sheet I put this verse, he, here's how he says about them. He says, these people, they honor me with their lips, hey, but their hearts are far from me. See, their hearts aren't pure. See, they don't have pure hearts. They're, they honor me with their lips, kind of look on the outside, but their hearts are impure. Now, this is what you love about a guy like Zacchaeus. See, here's what we're going to do today. 
We're going to talk about what does it mean to be the pure in heart, right? We're going to look at the three different sides of purity. But for every time, we're going to stop and check back with Zacchaeus because I love this guy. He's like a model to me of what it means to be pure in heart. This guy, he just, I love this guy. He's messed up his whole life. He's kind of lived for himself his whole life. But when this guy gets serious with God, he is a great example of what it looks like to turn around. And so you see this guy, he's risking his reputation. He's risking everything. He's heads for the tree. He wants to see God. He, he wants to connect. He's going to do whatever it takes. So first thing, what does it mean to be pure at heart? It means to have an honest heart, a sincere heart. No hypocrisy. We're not playing games. Number two, second side of purity, the key word here is cleansing, okay? Key word's cleansing. I wish I had a better word for you, but I worked on it all week. That's the best I could do. And the principle goes like this. It requires a cleansing. Purity requires a cleansing, and that, that involves new affections, In other words, what we're going to learn is that a pure heart does not come naturally. As a human being, we don't come with pure hearts. We come with impure hearts. That's the factory-installed equipment on human beings. Impure hearts. Have you ever noticed that? <laughs> Have you ever noticed something about yourself like, oh, I just don't like that. Where did that thought come from? Oh, I wish I wasn't that way. You see, we come factory-installed with impure hearts. And so Jesus says, if we're going to walk with God, if we're going to see God, then he's going to have to clean up our heart. He's going to have to cleanse our heart. Now here's an interesting thing. The religious leaders of Jesus' day, they were all into cleansing. They were all into purity. They understood this principle. If you're going to walk with God, you need to be cleansed so you're like God. They understood that. But instead of applying it internally to the heart, they applied it externally to their bodies. So if you read through the Gospels, you see this over and over. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, they were into external washings. They thought the key to seeing God in their life was the ritual. Wash your hands before meals. Wash your pots in a certain way. Make, wash your cups. Wash your saucers. There were certain ritual washings that were a huge part of Judaism at the time. How do you know God? How do you see God? You wash all the externals, you see? And Jesus comes along and says, no, it's not about the externals, it's about the internal. We have to have God cleanse our heart. He's got to change us from the inside out. He's going to have to give us a new heart, cleanse our old heart, put new desires, new affections. That's what's going to have to happen. Let me give you an example. Why don't you take your Bibles and turn to Matthew 15. We'll just take a look at one example of this. In Matthew chapter 15, here's the story. Jesus is getting into it with the spiritual leaders of the day. They come to him and they say to him, Jesus, hey, we've noticed your disciples, they don't wash their hands when they eat. Now what's up with that? See, they'd added all these man-made rules and, and uh, religion to the Old Testament. So we've noticed that your disciples, they're not washing their hands. What's up with that? Purity is an important thing. And Jesus gives them a little parable. He says, you know, it's not what comes into a man's mouth that makes him unclean. It's what comes out of a man's mouth that makes him unclean. Now, of course, the disciples, they're all there, and they're always pretending like they do, that they understand what Jesus says. 
you know. Yeah, that's a good one, Jesus. You tell them. And then later in the day, they pull him aside and like, what was that about? And so later in the day, Peter, you know, you can always count on Peter, right? Peter is the kind of guy you want in every crowd. He always asks the question that everyone wants to ask, but no one's afraid to ask. And so Peter asks him about that. Hey, what was up with that little parable? You know, the inside, outside mouth thing and all. And so verse 15, Peter says, explain the parable to us. And I love this. Jesus says, are you still so dull? (laughs) I hate it when he says that to me. (laughs) It's just like, Mike, are you still so dull? Yes, Jesus, I'm sorry. I'm just still so dull. I can't get, have you ever had like God teach you a lesson like 18 times and you still forget it? And you still so dull? And sometimes it's just really helpful for him to say, are you still so dull? It just kind of whacks you upside the head and go, okay, I'm paying attention this time. I want to get it. And so he says to them, are you still so dull? And, and you don't, we kind of wonder what they said. But anyway, verse 17 says, don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then it comes out the body? <laughs> okay, yeah, we get that. <laughs> We're there, you know, that's enough details. Verse 18, he says, but the things that come out of the mouth, the things that we say, our plans, our commands, our approach to life, the things that come out of the mouth, those things come from the heart, you see? And these make a man unclean. So Jesus says the matter of purity isn't an issue of your outward things, washing your hands. If you want to be pure, it has to happen at a heart level. We've got to kind of have God change our hearts. We have to have God cleanse our hearts. I, I, uh, about every two years, give or take, about every two years I go backpacking. Now the reason it takes two years between trips is because it takes me two years to forget what backpacking is really like. <laughs> After two years, all I remember is the beauty, the solitude, the refreshing, the fun times with friends. And so then I think, hey, let's go backpacking again. And then I go, and it's like, oh, I forgot about that part, you know. But I love going backpacking, because one of the things you do, I usually backpack on the east side of the Sierras, somewhere between Lone Pine and Bridgeport. Pick, a, pick an area. And so I go back, and one of the things I love, I love the pristine purity of the Sierras. There's something about that when you get 7,000, 8,000, 10,000, 12,000 feet, there's no one else around, and you can see forever. There's no smog, and you can breathe in deeply the air, and it's so clean, and the water is so crystal clear. It's just so beautiful. And Jesus says that's how our lives are designed to be. Our hearts were to be wellsprings that pure water would come out. He says, but something has happened to the human race and our hearts are polluted and now what flows out are evil things. Well, what kinds of things, Jesus? What are the things that defile us? What are the kinds of things that make us impure, that keep us from seeing God in our life and walking with God? Well, he gives us a list here. Here's an example. Verse 19. For out of the heart come evil thoughts. Well, like what? Well, like murder like stealing another person's life. Well, what else? Well, like adultery. Well, what's adultery? Well, adultery is stealing another man's wife or husband. Well, sexual immorality. 
Well, well, what's so impure about that? Well, it's stealing another person's moral purity. It's like theft. It's like false testimony. It's like stealing the truth from a courtroom. What about slander? That's like stealing someone's reputation. Have you ever been in a relationship where adultery is involved and watch it pollute the relationship? Have you ever been in a courtroom where someone's lying and watch it pollute justice? Have you ever been in a relationship where someone slanders you and it pollutes the relationship and destroys? See, Jesus says our hearts are to be pure wellsprings where love and justice and purity and righteousness, these good things come out and they bring healing and they bring life, but our hearts have been compromised and our hearts, the bad things flow out and they pollute our lives. Sometimes you'll be in the Sierras and there's a stream there and it's so beautiful and it's so pristine and it's crystal clear and you can see the little trout and the, the shade's there and it's just beautiful and the leaves are coming down and falling on the water and it's so beautiful and then a mule train comes along. And this mule train, they tromp through the water and everything gets muddy and then one of the mules stops in the middle and does what mules do. And all of a sudden you're like, now let's move on. This scene has lost it for me. You see, you've got the purity defiled. And Jesus comes and says, your hearts are to be pure like that mountain stream and yet sin has defiled it. So the second side of purity means I need to cleanse you. I need to change you from the inside out. Now, how does that happen? How does it happen in a person's life that our hearts are changed? Well, I think we have a great story with Zacchaeus. Let's go back to our story. So Zacchaeus, he's in the tree. He's got that deer in the headlight look. How does he know my name? He comes down. He says, I'm going to your house. I have to go to your house. I've got an appointment with you. Everyone's blown away. He's going to Zacchaeus' house. You can just, the crowd's rumbling. He's going to Zacchaeus. No way he's going to Zacchaeus' house. Of all the people in Jericho, does he know who Zacchaeus is? This is really weird. Let's go and see what happens. He goes to Zacchaeus' house. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us exactly what happens when he gets there, but I think I know. Because I've read enough Jesus stories and kind of piece this together. Jesus said, I'm going to your house to be your guest. Everyone else said he's going to be the guest of this sinner. Now, in that day, to be a guest meant food, right? Middle Eastern culture, guest means food. You can imagine they go back to Zacchaeus' place. It's a big spread. He's... This guy's wealthy. You can see him going in the back room and pulling his servants aside and saying, only nothing but the best. I want the best wine. I want the best uh, food. Let's get the, the best of the, the herd or whatever. And, and there's no like Costco to run out to, right? And so it's going to take a while. They've got to go out and kill the calf, the fatted calf. They've got to prepare this thing. You see this happening all the time in the Bible when there's a big feast, something special. And so they're around, and of course, Jesus is doing what Jesus always does. He's teaching, right? So you see him in the room. Big room, they're all there. Everyone's crowded in wall-to-wall people, and Jesus is teaching. And as he's teaching, all of a sudden, Zacchaeus has what I call a Jesus moment. Have you ever had a Jesus moment in your life? A Jesus moment is one of those times where all of a sudden it gets really clear who Jesus is, who you are, and how unlike Jesus you are. You ever had that time? And it's like all of a sudden you thought, hey, I think it's okay to do this in my life. I think I'm fine. I think God and I are fine. I think this is all right. I don't think it's a big deal. Maybe it's not the best. It's no big deal. And all of a sudden you have a Jesus movement. You go, oh, man, this part of my life is messed up. I'm doing this wrong. 
I'm defiled. I'm like that stream. I'm polluted. And I think what happens is Zacchaeus is there. Jesus is teaching. And Jesus is teaching like he always does. Things like, well, no man can serve two masters. You either hate the one and love the other. You love the one, you hate the other. No man can serve God and money. And all of a sudden, lights are going on for Zacchaeus. Like, whoa. And Jesus goes on and, hey, when you do it to the least of these, one of these my brothers, you do it unto me. He's like, oh, no, I've been doing it to them all right, but wrong way. And all of a sudden, Jesus is teaching, and it's coming together for him. All the emptiness he's been feeling the last few months, this need for something more in his life, and now Jesus is laying it out there, and it's getting crystal clear, and there's something rising in his heart that says, I have got to have what he's talking about. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been there where you've got to have what he's talking about? There's a hunger in your heart to see God. And you'll do whatever it takes because you need God in your life. And you want God. And I think that's what happens. And right in the middle, the Bible says he stands up and he says, Jesus, I get it. And he says, here's what he says. He says, right here, right now, I've been living for money. I've been living for fame. I've been living for power. Right here, right now, I'm giving half of everything I own to the poor. I'm changing my life. And by the way, if I've ever ripped anyone off, and everyone in the room's going, yes. If I've ever, and they're all perked up, oh, what's he going to do say now? I'll pay him back four times. You can see people, they're going, oh, that's a lot of money. Look how much I'm getting back. I'll pay him back four times because that's what the Old Testament law requires. You see, this is how it happens. How does it happen that we see God in our life? It starts with an honest search. It starts at a point in our life where you answer the question, do you want to see God in your life? Yes, you do. And you begin to honestly search for God. And you're willing to go climb trees or do whatever it takes. That's where it starts. And then guess what? Jesus shows up because he shows up with people who are honestly searching. And he shows up in your life and he comes to your house and he sits down and he begins to teach. And somewhere along the line, as you invite Jesus into your life, he begins to teach. Guess what? He begins to put his finger on what it is in your life that's defiling your heart and holding you back. And as he puts his finger on that, and for you it may be totally different. For Zacchaeus, it was the money thing. But for you, it may be different. It could be a person. It could be another habit. It could be a priority. It could be a dream. It could be a billion things. But Jesus begins to surface the issue, and all of a sudden you see it for the first time what it is. It's unclean. And as you act and as you do what Jesus shows you in that moment, guess what? He purifies your heart. See, you can't change your heart. I can't change my heart. Only Jesus can change hearts. But usually he requires you to take a step in the right direction. And it's as we obey that he changes our hearts. So that's the second, second side. The side of cleansing. Now there's a third side to this triangle of purity. And it goes like this. The key word, if you've made your little diagram, the key word is allegiance. As in, I pledge allegiance. The word is allegiance. And the principle goes like this, that, that purity demands our allegiance, no idolatry. Now, let me spell this one out a little bit more. It's a little different than the other two. Most scholars believe that when Jesus 
issued his sixth beatitude, blessed are the pure in heart, they'll see God, that he was actually either quoting or referring to a psalm in the Old Testament. It's there in your note sheet. We're not going to look it up right now, but it's the wrong psalm on your note sheet. So if you want to correct it, it's Psalm 24. It's not Psalm 23, 3 and 4. It's 24, 4 uh, 4 and 4. And this is a psalm that we sang earlier today. Give us clean hands, give us pure heart, let us not lift up our soul to an idol. Now, here's how the psalm starts, on verse 3 actually. David, King David's writing it, and he asks a very important question. In Psalm 24, he says, God, who may ascend into your holy hill? The holy hill refers to the temple on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. So the question he's asking is, God, what sort of person can come in and meet you at the temple? What's the kind of person that you will have fellowship with? He's really asking the same question Jesus has. What's the kind of person who gets to see God? And he answers it, and he says, well, he who has a clean hand, someone who's cleansed his life of defilements. We just talked about the cleansing. And he says, and he who has a pure heart. Now, most scholars believe that Jesus, when he's saying, blessed are the pure in heart, has Psalm 24 in his mind. He who has a pure heart. Well, what does it mean to have a pure heart? Well, in that passage, the very next thing it says is he who has not lifted up his soul to an idol. Okay? What does it mean to have a pure heart? It means to come to a place where we do not lift up our soul to an idol. Well, what does that mean? Well, this was the, na- this was the, the problem in the nation of Israel all the way through that they would go to the temple and they would worship the God of Israel. Then they'd go around town, or across town, to the first church of Baal and they would lift up their soul to an idol. They would pray to an idol, you see? And so they wanted it both ways. They wanted to worship the God of Israel, but they wanted also to worship the gods of the nations around them. They wanted it both ways. And what David is saying is, no, uh uh-uh, it doesn't work that way. Who can ascend into the hill of the Lord? He who has not lifted up his soul to an idol. There is no divided allegiance. There is solo allegiance. I pledge allegiance to the God of Israel and to him alone, you see. God says he will reveal himself to those who get rid of the idols in their life. Soul allegiance. Now, Jesus picks up the same theme in his teaching. And if you study the life of Jesus, he's often saying things like this. If you want to be my disciple, you need to leave it all behind, one way or another. You need to have soul allegiance. You'll never see Jesus, someone says, hey, Jesus, I'm pretty much for you. I'm 50% in. Can I follow you? Great. Come on board. Never says that. What he'll do is he'll always say, no, it's kind of all or nothing. You're either in or you're out, right? So one example, for example, there on your note sheet is from Luke chapter 14. Now this is one of those passages that if you've ever read it on your own in the past and you haven't been a Christian a while, which I know a lot of you are very new at this. That's one of those passages you read and you go, huh? Because he says like the opposite of what you would think. But you have to understand the way they taught in those days and the way uh, Semitic teaching passages work, often they would give these contrasts to make a point. And so it says that large crowds were traveling with Jesus and they were, in turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me, you want to follow me, and he does not hate his father or mother. Now here's the teaching point. He's not saying he really wants you to hate the father and mother. This was, they would often put extremes to make a point 
the Bible, Jesus always said we're to love people, right? So that's his number one teaching. So we know he doesn't mean that. But what he's saying is that there is only room for one God in your life and my life. There is only one room for the top priority. Who holds it in your life? Who is the God in your life? He says that when it comes to other relationships, I have to be number one. You have to love me more than your father and mother, more than your wife, more than your children, more than your brothers, more than your sisters. Yes, even more than your own life. You need to be willing to die for me. He says, and if that's not the case, catch this, he cannot be my disciple. Now notice what he says. He doesn't say, I won't let you be my disciple. He says, you cannot be my disciple. Here's what he's saying. Let's say that your wife is more important to you than Jesus. That you, you like both of them, okay? But your wife, push comes to shove, is more important to you than Jesus. Well, well here's what Jesus is saying. There's going to come a point in your life where I want you to go right and your wife wants you to go left and you're going to go left. You're going to stop following me. He says, if, if you love your father or mother more than me, there's going to come a point in your life where I say one thing, they say another, and you're going to do what your mom says. You see? There's only room in our lives for one supreme God. Who do we bow down to? Jesus says, no idols. Now, this is exactly what we see in Zacchaeus. I'm just convinced you say life of this guy. This guy was in, his God was what? Money, wealth, power. That's his God was. And that day when he let go and said, I'll give up half of this and I'll, I'll pay back, what was he doing? He was giving up his idols. He was surrendering his life to the lordship of Jesus. So we've got our three words. We've got sincerity, we've got cleansing, we've got allegiance. Three sides of our triangle. Now, before we leave this and get real practical, I want to make one point. This to me is one of the most fascinating things of the Zacchaeus story. I love this. Jesus is walking along. He sees Zacchaeus in the tree. And what he says is not, hey, interesting to meet you. When you come down, do you have time today? What he says is, you have to come down. I must come to your house today. In other words, this was a divine appointment. In other words, of all the people in Jericho, catch this, of all the people in Jericho, Jesus is going after this guy. Of all the people, he is going, he's locked on. He's going after this guy. Now, do you want to be the kind of person that Jesus comes after? You see? I look at my life, I say, Jesus, I want to be the guy that you say, I have to come to your house. I want to be that guy. What does it take to be that guy? And Jesus says, Mike, look at Zacchaeus. What does it take? He says, I go after a certain kind of person. I go after a person who is stop, ready to stop playing games with me. They are sincere, the real deal. They're a person who's willing to deal with their issues when I point them out. They're a person who are willing to give up their idols. He says, Mike, I go after those kinds of people. The eyes of the Lord look to and fro over the whole earth, it says in Chronicles, to find a man whose heart is fully devoted to me that I may show myself strong on his behalf. God is looking for men and women who will have a pure heart. 
You see? He, and he'll come after them. He'll call them out of trees. He'll say, come on down. I need to come to your house. Isn't that awesome? That God will pursue us. That he will pursue. He's looking for men and women that have a pure heart. Now, catch this. Not a perfect past, right? Zacchaeus had the most messed up past. Didn't matter. What we always learn about Jesus. Doesn't care where you came from. It cares where you're going. Okay, so let's get real practical here. Let's see how pure our hearts are. Let's ask some just practical questions here. Real quickly, as we wrap this thing up, the purity principles, three practical questions. Where the rubber meets the road, three questions. Number one, how are you doing this area? Number one, are you willing to stop pretending with God? First, first question every one of us has to ask. Um, are we pretending? Are there any areas of our life we're pretending? We're pretending to pursue God, but in your heart of hearts, you know that you're not. You may be fooling your friends. You may be fooling your spouse. Maybe fooling your life group, but you know you've got one foot in and one foot out. You're pretending. You're pretending to pursue God, but in reality, you're really not. It's all about the image. You're protecting the image. It's image management. It's not a, a pure heart. Is seeking after God. Well, what do we learn today? Well, for as long as we're pretending, God will say, get back to me later when you're ready to be real. I don't have time for pretenders. Okay? You don't in your relationship. I don't in my relationships. God doesn't in his. Okay? Number two. Second question, are you willing to clean up your act? Now, let me explain what I mean and what I don't mean because I, I don't want you to mishear me on this. Some of you, you're coming here today, you're really new at this. Maybe you've been a follower of Jesus for a while. You've got a lot of issues going on in your life. And, and so I don't want you to hear that like, oh, I have to go out there and fix everything in my life and then God will come after me, right? That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that when we start pursuing Jesus and we let him into our house like Zacchaeus did, sooner or later, he is going to raise an issue. He's going to say, this is the issue that's holding you back. I want to draw closer to you, but this is what's getting between us. This is why you can't see me right now. Now, for Zacchaeus, it was his possessions. It was his wealth, right? And for you and I, it could be totally something different. It could be a dream. It could be a relationship. It could be a habit. It could be a priority. It could be a million things. But as you add Jesus, as you pursue Jesus, and Jesus comes into your home, Guess what's going to happen is that he's going to put his fingers on something. He's going to say, this for you, this has to change. For Zacchaeus, it was his money. For us to be something different. It might be the same. could be something different. So the question is, are you willing to clean up your act when Jesus puts the spotlight on? You see? Not just in general, but in your life right now. Some of you are here right now. You know what your issue is. You're in a relationship you have no business being in. You're pursuing something you know is distancing you from Jesus. It's so clear. You've got an attitude. You've got a pursuit. You know what it is. So the question is, are you willing to deal with that? Number three. The third question is, are you, are you ready to give up your idols? Can I tell you what an idol is? An idol is something we serve because we believe it will make us happy. Yeah. An idol is something we bow down to in our life other than God because we believe ultimately it will make it, us happy. Can I tell you something? Idols never 
deliver. They're not real gods. They don't have the power to deliver. You say, well, how do I know if I have any idols in my life? Here's a question for you. Are there any areas of your life where you're saying, God, you can deal with anything in my life, but you can't deal with this one area? If you say yes, then that's your idol. That's how we figure it out. If not, if you ask God any idol, he says, no, that's great. Let's move on. Let's keep pursuing. But is there any area of your life you say, God, you can have this, you can have this, you can have this, but this one area, you can't touch that. That is the idol. I love the story of Zacchaeus. It's the end of the day. They've had dinner. The camera's zooming out. We're fading away. The lights are going down. The last scene we've seen in the middle of the room, you have the most unlikely sight, the most unlikely duo. You've got the young rabbi from the north of Israel embracing the tax collector that everyone hates. Around the room, no one could believe it. No one could draw up a script like this. It wouldn't sell. No one would buy into it. They'll be talking about this scene for years to come. The day that Jesus came and hung out with Zacchaeus. The last words we hear Jesus say is he looks at the crowd. And he says to the crowd, hey, I want you to pay attention to what just happened here today. He said, God showed up. In fact, he said, this is a quote, salvation is here. So what did you see happen here with Zacchaeus? That's, that's, that's salvation. You know what it looks like? Salva- that's salvation. What happened right there? He says, God showed up. He says, let me tell you something else. He says, the reason I came to planet Earth is for people like Zacchaeus. I came looking for guys like Zacchaeus. People that maybe have messed up their lives. People who are far from me. I could care less where you come from. But I'm looking for guys who are are willing to climb a tree because they're hungry to see God. I'm looking for guys who are willing to clean up their act when there's something holding them back from growing. I'm looking for guys that will give up their idols. He says, because believe it or not, I know it doesn't look that way. I know Zacchaeus doesn't look like a child of Abraham, like a true child of Abraham. I know he looks like a renegade. He says, I'm telling you the truth. This man today has shown he is a true child of Abraham. He's a friend of God like Abraham was. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they and they alone will see God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the story of Zacchaeus and for your word about what it means to be pure in heart. God, I love guys like this. They show me what it looks like. I need models sometimes. God, I want to be that man. I want to be that man who's willing to risk everything, climb a tree, look like a fool if that's what it takes to see you. I want to be that man who's willing to deal with the stuff in my life that's holding me back. I want to be the man that sacrifices my idols. And Lord, we just pray as a church that you would come and you'd be with us now, even in this time of communion. As we look at our lives, we ask the question about hypocrisy. We ask the questions about pollution. We ask the questions about idols, God, that you would meet with us now and as your church, we would come before you and we would be like Zacchaeus today. We would, we would run to get in the tree to meet with you. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Well, that's going to do it for this week's message. We hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have putting it together. Please visit us at rockypeak.org where you can download more messages or have your questions answered. 
Remember, you can subscribe to our weekly podcast for free by searching for The Church at Rocky Peak from within the music store in your iTunes software. For Lead Pastor Mike Yearly and everybody up here at The Peak, thanks for listening.